Welcome to How Church Works. This endeavor is focused primarily on sharing conversation and discovering its purpose and function. While in each episode there will be a starting topic, our podcast will be off the reins from typical scripted content, warranting more intimate and creative discussion. Our desire is to find truth in love, and on our end, behind the mic, we believe that Yeshua, or Jesus of Nazareth, is the Messiah, and as a person, is the truth. As our own church, we aim to obey the scriptures, and we are given a duty to equip and build up followers of the way. We hope this will be an accessible platform for such a duty through our conversations. As we continue, you'll be able to perceive more into our lives as disciples of Christ, but we invite you in, as a listener, to meditate on these conversations and, hopefully, can continue them with others in your lives. Again, welcome. So, I thought of talking about Psalm 22 because I actually heard a guy on a podcast giving a class about how it could potentially be a Davidic psalm, and I just thought immediately like about how much we, as a church, aim the Torah, um, aim all of Scripture toward Messiah. Yeah. And it's like the insight that it could be, it is like a Davidic Psalm and it points to the Messiah. I was like, I want to get to more of yeah. what Christians believe Jesus was saying when he's saying, why have you forsaken me? That's right. Um, so yeah. this, this episode is going to be about Psalm 22. Obviously we won't cover every capacity at yes. which it is Jesus, like what he meant. But I think yeah. talking about it, getting people, if they listen, um, more informed, I think is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. I don't know where to start. Um, uh, I mean, so I mean, well, I guess I I could speak to like what I'm. Yeah, you guide uh, me because yeah. I know that you want to. I think one of the benefits on this is, or, or with this podcast is, in a way, you get to be the mediator, the proxy for mm-hmm. the audience in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. And I don't mean that I'm not connected to the audience. I just mean, I think I'm more obtuse, and the way that I think about the way that I think about things and uh, it's you're, you're enormously helpful in, in kind of guiding me on behalf of your hearing conversations regurgitated and repeated over and over again. And mm. I think your vantage point is invaluable. So mm. I have a lot of information on where we could start, but I kind of would rather you guide. Yeah. Um, so I guess uh, I, I mean, maybe we could go through Psalm 22. I'm, That's I'm, a great idea. Let me actually think about where to start. That, I mean, that might be good. Um, uh, okay. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, do we want to do this like moderns or do we want to do this like ancient people? Because that could be a great place to just start this conversation. That's really simple. Um, Unless but, you have an idea you want to say, no, I want to steer it a little bit differently. Well, Take it. I, think, I think what I want to do is like give more of a disillusion idea specifically about... Mm-hmm what Jesus was saying when he was praying Psalm Uh, 22 uh, on the cross and that people assume it means that God poured out his wrath and he turned his face away. Um, And I mean, let's, let's actually do it like the ancients would do it. I think that that'd be good. Okay. Okay. I think that uh, I I know that. Yeah. So you're talking about the dissolution. You're talking about like maybe the way that people are more inclined to hear it now and the confusion around it. And we can touch that first. I think that's a good point because if we go right into it like the ancients did, we're going to immediately be alien. And the reason that people keep... Let, let's just be... I want to be plain. This is just like a factual thing, okay? Yeah. At the start, uh, the idea of it being a messianic psalm entirely depends on who the Messiah is, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and Because there are still today psalms that I think Orthodox Jews would say are, you know, they would probably say they're Mashiachit, they're, they're about the Messiah, but they don't accept Yeshua as Messiah, 
right? Uh-huh. So, so what do we, we just touched that idea of a messianic psalm. Well, let's just say it's messianic. And let's just say, to make the conversation easier, anybody who wrote in the New Covenant writings, the New Testament, they identify Yeshua of Nazareth as the Messiah. Mm-hmm. So those who identify Yeshua of Nazareth as the Messiah, when they say a psalm is messianic, that, that kind of narrows the playing field for us, which right. is good. We kind of want that. We don't want to right. be too broad. Well, in light of that, this is just an an important fact. Psalm 22 is the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. Mm-hmm. So like right there, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you have you have a reason. You have a reason to give it heavy consideration and really make sure you understand it. Because, and we're not just saying like, oh, well, psalms are only quoted three times and it's quoted twice. We're saying dozens of times, even more peculiarly, it is the most directly associated psalm with Yeshua's death. Okay, mm-hmm. with his death. Mm-hmm. Um, his betrayal and his death. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's a way to that that's a way to touch it. Um, the way people hear this psalm, and I kind of did this just so I had like a a little bit of a background because we we're we're trying to touch this in part for Christians, you know. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people have heard quotations of Psalm 20, 22 and just acquiesced and just given into an idea without really thinking it through. I'm gonna I'm just gonna. <clears throat> the first off the phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me has been latched onto by a lot of people. This isn't just like scholarly people, people who love the New Testament. This is in things like hymns, you know? So, uh, an example of that, I'll, uh, I'll pull it up. You can pull up the lyrics for this. It's the song called how deep the father's love for us. Very popular Christian hymn, whatever. Um, and there's this line that it kind of reveals why people, uh, think the way they do about Psalm 22 in light of the beliefs they already have about Jesus' death and why he died. So um, there's a line that says, "How in how deep the Father's love for us, it says, I'm trying to pull this line up now. Uh, yeah, right here, sorry. We have this line. Okay, so we go to this hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, okay? How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away. Mm-hmm. Okay, the father turns his face away. This is a very popular, this is an often repeated phrase about Yeshua. Okay, and what's ironic about it is Psalm 22 is like, duh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Duh, Yeshua says this, Jesus says this when he's dying. So there it is, right? In black and white. Um, this is, we have to think about this. Okay, so how do ideas develop and how do they get spread and mm-hmm. how are they shared? Mm-hmm. For for one thing, to, give, to, to, to not make it too, I don't want to set up a straw man. Their ideas that, that are typical Christian ideas, which itself is kind of a, is a deceitful phrase, typical Christian ideas. Christian ideas have been developed through thousands of years of dialogue and historical events you know hey what's up little niece both, both of our niece goes um oh my god my dad why have you forsaken me um so like, uh, uh i i i think um the a, a typical protestant christian approach particularly post-reformation protestants which is very very they have huge influence in in the united states they teach a multi-dimensional view of the death of Jesus. So it's not one-dimensional. I will say that it's an incredibly diminished view of the death of Jesus when you consider how many scriptures the New Testament authors themselves apply to the death of Jesus mm-hmm. and how they understand the death of Jesus. They have a very, I think they have a very reductive view of the death of Jesus. But that said, it's multi-dimensional. So 
you have ideas that are dependent that that a, a, a understanding of the death of Jesus emerges for Protestants out of key ideas that they believe are just givens. But some of these really relate to translation. They relate to ignorance of the Old Testament. Uh, and so uh, very, very simply, you if you're just a sober reading of the Old Testament, keeping in view all the allusions and quotations of the New Testament authors, would demonstrate something's amiss, something's wrong. Right. We're not reading. Yeah. We're not reading the Psalms the way the New Testament authors are reading the Psalms, mm-hmm. and we're not even understanding the death of Jesus the way that the author, the authors of the New Testament, seem to have understood it. And uh, this bears out really powerfully with Psalm twenty-two. Uh, so you, uh, I'm not going to touch this very long, but it it, it really it's important. Uh, first, you have to say why. Why you die, Jesus? You know, keep it very simple. I'm trying to think yeah. of pigeon talk. You know, yeah. I talk to my kid. Why did Jesus die? Uh, I'm going to give very short Protestant answers. He uh, he died to make atonement. Okay, cool. What's atonement? Um, Protestant answers. The God is just and wrathful. Someone had to be, pun- God has to punish sin. Uh, the punishment of that sin is the absorption of wrath. That's what happens to sacrifices. Okay. Now that's patently false. That's just not true of, uh, sacrifices in the Old Testament, <laughs> mm-hmm. sacrifice in the New Testament, mm-hmm. but but it's it's the narrative that's prevailed. Okay, um, you can look at uh, you can look at John Calvin's commentary on Leviticus one. Okay, so if things as simple as when the offerer lays their hands on the head of their uh, burnt offering, the highest form of offering in Leviticus, which is the first one detailed, mm-hmm. they eisegete, and again, eisegesis is slippery. Sometimes just putting in a single added bit will change the entire meaning. What's, a, what's eisegesis? I, okay, eisegesis is the opposite. So in Greek, uh, epsilon, iota, sigma, is in modern pronunciation means into or towards. Mm-hmm. Okay, ek, ex or ek is where we get that from Greek as well. means out of. Okay, Okay. Ek. So exegesis is taking out of the text, which is what we want to do. Okay. Eisegesis is reading into the text things that aren't there. We don't want to oh, do okay. that. Eisegesis. I, yeah. yeah. I think eisegesis is unavoidable if we're humble and we just got to work through it and try our best not to because um, you can do it ignorantly but here's an example John Calvin said they transferred the sins their sins to that offering when they laid the hand okay if you read Leviticus Samachido, it will be received in favor of the one who offered it they, they rest their hand on it it's not a there's no transfer of sin and in fact the only time sin is transferred to a sacrifice is not a blood sacrifice and it's not for Yahweh it's and it's the atonement is made not for all the people that the two goats on the Day of Atonement, high priest lays his hand on the goat that the lot cast for Azazel, the name of another god. He, it's an offering for the high priest for all the sins and iniquities and transgressions of Israel. And he lays the hands on that goat for Azazel, not a blood sacrifice, and, con- and transfers all of the sins and transgressions and iniquities of Israel for him. It makes atonement for the high priest. And, and this is bizarre, right? This gets applied to Jesus all the time. It's like, see, look, it's just right there. He's, you know, he's that, he's that go for Azazel. It's incredible because nowhere is he depicted as such in the New Testament. And in fact, if you read Hebrews, the only, uh, really the only book of the New Testament that directly deals with the Day of Atonement and how Yeshua fulfilled the Jewish calendar because you have the problem that Matthew 5, 17, I did not come to abolish the Torah and the prophets, but rather fulfill them. But the Torah is very laden with all kinds of different calendrical requirements. So which of them did Yeshua fulfill? Well, we, as a new covenant follower of Yeshua of Nazareth, you say all of them. 
he fulfilled all of them. Mm-hmm. But he fulfilled all of them with often a singular punctiliar acts, which means his singular actions are laden with deeper significance. Okay? Right. Now, right. the only author to say, let me try to take up the significance of the death of the Messiah in light of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is the author of Hebrews. Okay? Um, and the author of Hebrews directly, between the chapters of 11 to 13, the author of Hebrews directly correlates him to uh, the goat for Yahweh, not the goat for Azazel. Like, I, 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 there are two goats. The rituals, like, surrounding each of the goats are very, very precise, very methodical. And okay. the, the author of Hebrews quotes how he is the goat for Yahweh and does not mention the goat for Azazel. Huh. And the goat for Azazel is not a blood sacrifice. The entire point, I mean, even, let's just keep it really simple. Okay, what is sacrifice, this kind of thing. We're, we're getting kind of a field, far afield. I don't know if that's right. okay or not. Or, I yeah. think that's fine, I mean, for understanding about, uh, I, I mean, it's a deeper understanding of the psalm and how Christians would use it. Yeah, you know? so, so basically, blood. Blood yeah. is necessary for a sacrifice, blood sacrifice. We go for Azazel, it's not a blood sacrifice. At all. They, they lay hands on it and let it go, right? They, can, they there's a they is a loose word. He... <laughs> The, the priest, the, the, the high, high priest, priest right. lays both hands on it, which is important because you're only to lay one hand. It, it's significant. Um, Samachido means to confer or rest all your weight on something, like a staff. Mm-hmm. Okay, that 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 ritual of laying your hand when it, when an Israelite offers a sacrifice, an Israelite to Yahweh, he leans with one hand, not two, on the head of the goat. Samachido, he rests his hand on it. And it's like, imagine the picture of leaning on a goat. You're leaning on it because you lack the ability to stand would be one way to read that. It's a good, beautiful, pleasing aroma, a favorable thing that you can lean on and it's received in place of what you yourself can't offer, right? Whereas both hands are laid by the high priest on this goat and it is sent away. And the only people who help him are people who are designated, probably priests, um, in the line of Aaron, but people who help him because the goat has now achieved a status of, of, of heavenly because the high priest has conferred it. Things, being, the idea of being holy has more to do with <clears throat> what realm does it belong to, earth or heaven, seen mm-hmm. or unseen. So it's in a state where it can't return to, to Israel and the guy helps the high priest. If it tries to come back, they're to stone it. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, so they just like send this goat away. And... Um, the, so it becomes, I say that because you have concepts like this, sacrifices for blood. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's not a blood sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Where do we get the idea that Yeshua is forsaken and cast away? Where is this idea coming from? Um, and uh, to be honest, this is a multidimensional view and people don't know where it came from. The, the prevailing, so what you have is, I'm going to, I'm going to, really, I'm going to test myself because I don't think I do a good job of being short when I say I'm going to be short, but let's imagine how these ideas develop, you know? Okay. Um, first, the prevailing participants in the Jesus movement are all Jews. Mm-hmm. If I say to you, uh, if I say to you in English, "Oh wow, that that really happened! Get out of here!" Right. You're like, it's an idiom. You're like, yeah, no, it really happened. I did that once where uh, I was speaking to a Kenyan, and I uh, and Kenyan English is different from American English. So he told me something wild, wonderful, and I said, "Get out of here!" And he was like. Why are you telling me to leave? So uh, (laughs) we don't explain our idioms to each other. We don't explain things we already know. 
okay? When I say nice set of wheels, I don't say, I'm not talking about Firestone, I'm speaking about the entire car. By the way, a car is an automobile. By the way, this was first made by Henry T. Ford. Before that, we used horses. I don't explain all that. Mm -hmm. Jews, speaking to Jews, have so much in common. There's much they don't share or speak about because it is assumed as a given. Okay. So the uh, the mechanics of how sacrifice works it's a thoroughly jewish understanding in the new testament that bears out i don't mean it couldn't be reconstructed because you could do a reconstruction of american english and figure out what we mean by our idioms yeah but i just mean you don't waste time touching it well when the church became gentilified that's my made-up word gentilification okay paul prophesied this the gentiles are going to flood in and that indeed did happen um the prevailing understanding of atonement is what's called ransom theory Okay. Ransom theory. Ransom theory of atonement. Something is unpaid. Uh, like kind of, but it actually is funny because it has to do with duping the devil. And the funny thing about atonement was the uh, this is when I say the prevailing, you're talking from like the late 100s, early 200s AD, all the way to 10 to a thousand. Okay. The dominating theory of atonement is ransom theory, and there's two aspects of it. One is, or, or you could say, in a subset of ransom theory is Christus Victor. Okay, which they're really related, but it. Who was the ransom paid to in this prevailing understanding? To the devil. Okay. To the devil. Because he held us by our sins. He enslaved us by our sins. Mm -hmm. If someone enslaves an Israelite, you don't pay back God to get the Israelite. You pay back the foreigner. You ransom the foreigner. You ransom your Israelite by paying a foreigner to get them back. Do you understand? Um, and so the ransom theory of atonement emphasizes the idea that human beings were trapped in sin and held in bondage by the devil, which is a very, even just saying that out loud, it's like, oh, wow, I can think of a ton of verses that match that. We've been taken captive by the devil to do his will. Uh, he holds the power of death. The devil mm -hmm. holds the power of death. I have all power in, in the kingdoms, you know, a kingdom divided against itself can't stand. Satan's kingdom will fall apart of it. You know what I'm saying? Right. So I'm not opposed to what the ransom theory brings into view. Also, the ransom theory, the ransom theory emphasizes the idea of if they had known they crucified the Lord of glory, they wouldn't have done it. The ransom theory is like God tricked the devil as part of, <laughs> as part of their view. And, they, they, uh. and that touches somewhat the Christus victory thing to a degree. So that prevails. Well, what happens? Well, the Catholic Church emerges. Property um, starts to... Uh, a lot of people wonder, why do they do the perpetual virginity thing? Is it just like... On, is it like a, 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 a pass off of the Greek Hellenistic mindset of chastity? Because mm -hmm. there were that. I mean, that's a very common thing. Uh, but really, I think it's property rights because what ends up happening is is when elders and authorities within the church gained wealth through alms and through people being sharing with them, they became very powerful. One way to stop that is the institutional church forbade marriage, so that with if a priest became wealthy, all of their property turned over to the institution. Over time, that institution becomes very powerful, whatever. And I'm skipping a lot and very broad strokes here. By the time we get to uh, the situation of Christendom in Europe, okay, because the, the center, we could say, of Christendom kind of shifts from Jerusalem to Antioch yeah. to Rome to let's fight over it in Western Europe. Um, and yeah. and uh, Anselm, is a Catholic theologian and thinker who uh, comes up with a satisfaction theory of atonement, okay? He uses syllogistic logic, he's very deductive, um, and he, he doesn't make it about wrath or justice. It, 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 he's a missing link to how do we get to Protestants, uh, or how do we get to the, the, the kind of 
uh, penal substitutionary atonement in particular, he had satisfaction theory, and it was about God's honor. And if you read it very simply, what is happening in Anselm's day and age where God could fit, fit into this scheme or model? Very simple. Feudalism. Feudalism. Uh, there is a noble and a lord who owns the land. Honor is a life or death matter in this context. God is dishonored by our sin, and he can't let his own honor not be restored. And so, so he chooses a couple like... So Jesus restores his honor, okay, in our place because we've dishonored him. This is where we're starting to get to the penal direction. Okay, the idea that, right. that... And this is a very commonly held idea. It's unfortunate. When you touch ideas that are deeply commonly held that are also unanalyzed, you're like kicking over sacred cats. A lot of Protestants just as a given, they say no duh if I say, Jesus was punished for our sins. Oh yeah, no duh, given. No, he wasn't. And yet, that's so, it's a prevailing idea. Right. The question is, well, how do we get this idea? Well, I'm telling you that narrative. And by the time Anselm moves it forward, what you end up having is, uh, that's 10 or 1100. Uh, he's a philosopher as well. He comes up with certain, you know, useful proofs for God's existence, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, time moves forward. And then the Reformation takes place. Okay. And a lot of post-Reformation thinkers, first off, Reformation thinkers did not start with the desire to branch off or schism, or make denominations. They call it the reformate, reformation for a reason. They desire to reform the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. not to dis create dissent with it and break off. Right. Their hand was forced uh, in, in a lot of instances. But that the, you know, we're now getting closer historically to where do Protestants come from, where do they get their ideas. Um, and the Lutheranism helps in this exchange. Calvinism helps in this exchange. You have Zwingli who comes up with some of his ideas. Erasmus is influential. Um, and a lot of these ideas spread and meld and disseminate within Europe. Okay. And uh, you can, penal substitution or atonement becomes very, very prevalent at this time. And it's the idea that, uh, and Calvin articulates this, you know, very systematically. God is wrathful at sin. Okay. Um, which is true, sin is disgusting, but it's a, it's a strange view of wrath. They actually depict him first in their ontology of God, their theology. He is perfect and holy and can't tolerate sin, can't forgive it. This becomes very interesting because it doesn't, when you create a certain ontological system, okay, of understanding, and then you fit, you try to fit God into it, fit scripture into it, you can actually turn things inside out, upside down, just to justify your system. Mm-hmm. So now it doesn't matter that you literally have hundreds, if not thousands, of verses. And actually thousands when you take two of the main uh, lemmas in view in Hebrew. It doesn't matter that you have thousands of verses about God forgiving and it being a part of his very nature. With this kind of Hellenistic, and they don't know that, I wouldn't, that, that might be too pejorative. With this depiction of God, we'll say that. It's impossible for him to forget. He literally right. can't. Like okay. he's, he can't. Because if he forgives... Without punishing. Let me be more specific. And this changes the meaning of forgiveness, by the way. They would say, of course God can forgive after punishment is done. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Like, uh, but that's, that's what they believe. And their, their rationale is what's threatened in this scheme is God's holiness. His honor. His yeah. honor, his person. And it got to the place where it's not honor anymore. It's his justice. His justice. Okay. It's a depiction of justice and righteousness that is starting to get so far afield from the Torah that it's almost unrecognizable at this point. And yet it pervades people's thinking. And so the idea is how do we get forgiveness? And, and then the gospel becomes an eternal scheme from the time beforehand. They take 
phrases out of context, like Paul saying God passed over sins that were previously committed, it, to work this out in Yeshua, to mean, to mean, God was wrathful towards the sins of people that existed on the planet prior to uh, Jesus of Nazareth, but he waited to pour out all of his wrath for their sins and all of the wrath for the future sins on mm, Jesus on himself. Jesus. Um, and so you, you have these kinds of ideas, whatever. And we've gone, I mean, I'm, I'm bad at this. We've gone so far afield from Psalm, Psalm 22. Um, well, I think, I mean, all of that really helps contextually to see like, how did we get to this place? Okay. Okay. So I, I'll say this. We're now in the place where we've got this multidimensional view. Okay. And we'll add to it this very simply. Second Corinthians 5, 21, the idea that Jesus became sin or the idea that sin is transferred to all sacrifices and sacrifices become sin and Jesus's death is sacrificial. You can start to see how these ideas kind of beg questions. They lead to an almost unavoidable outcome, which is why you have to be careful about your foundation. There are certain things that no matter how badly you want to say your thinking doesn't skew to the left, if all of your foundation skews to the left, no matter what you build on top of it, it's going to always struggle with skewing to the left. Mm -hmm. And you're almost going to see it as like magical. Now, I'm, I'm going to be pejorative here and use rhetoric. It's almost like the... Uh, I can't remember if we decided. Are we cussing this? We, we, yeah, we can cuss. Okay. So I don't, and I don't want to cuss people with something said, but it's such a good word. Bullshit's such a good word. It's almost like this <laughs> bullshit that our own Aaron says to Moshe when he comes down from the mountain. What is going on? And he says, oh, uh, the people who told me, they prevailed on me, wanted me to make an idol. They gave me all these earrings, and I put it in the fire, and this calf came out. Right. The calf came out. Yeah. Or what? You, like, it's like you were... You, you formed were the calf. Now, by the way, this is that's how ancient idolatry worked anyways. They had rituals like that where they un, they literally would throw the tools into the river and say that God formed this, and it came from the heavens, whatever, whatever. So my point is, it's like that, where people are like, look, can't you read Romans 9 to 11? Can't you see with Second Corinthians? It just, this is the only... A conclusion. Yeah, you're right. It is the only conclusion. If, if we pretend that I don't see the strings connecting right. the puppets, okay? right? We can play right. that game, but I'm not going to play it. You have there are a lot of assumptions that are made, and if I just say I don't have those assumptions because I think they're unscriptural, it falls apart. Yeah, it falls apart. Um, and so now we're to this place where we're like, okay, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? There it is. It's so simple. It's so clear. So, uh, and it might be good for people to be like, I don't know what time we're at. Like you can kind of see a timestamp. You could like put. Yeah, it in there. we're at we're at not even at thirty minutes. Okay, sweet. You can jump to Psalm twenty-two for people like just get in the Psalm. I uh, I want to say to you. Okay, so I say to you, brother. Like, okay, let's be like the ancients. Let's analyze Psalm twenty-two. Here's a funny question people don't even think about with their little cute post fifteen hundreds Bibles with verses and chapters. Um, I say to you. As an ancient person. So you know, too, all I'm doing is writing down timestamps to keep in mind. Perfect. Like, this is when we start the psalm, et cetera. No, that's perfect. Um, and I... Uh, how do we... So you, uh, let's just... You and I are ancient people. We're going to discuss Psalm 22. We're mm -hmm. going to pretend that we're contemporaries with Yeshua, just so we can try to mm -hmm. step into the, what the New Testament is saying. And how does the New Testament understand psalms? And the Psalm 22 in particular. So I say to you, can we go to Psalm 22 first... What the hell does that even mean? Right. You they didn't have Psalm 22. Sure. Did they? So in their pocket Bibles that were printed, did they have just no chapters and verses? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so well, yeah. I remember you saying before at gathering that yeah. when they would know the psalm by how it began. Yes. Right. Yeah. I'm being a butthead on purpose. 
The printing press, the Gutenberg printing press was the first. Obviously one of the first things we printed was Bibles. It's not an accident that right around that time, Jews and Christians separately, post printing press, came up with the annotated need to have a, a neat divisions to be able to help people navigate this book. Prior to that, you'd have scrolls, and scrolls are a single composite unit, or codices, you could have codices, okay? But codices are not, they're copied by hand, very precious, very valuable, different to navigate. Now you have this thing that's like, this thing called a book. Mm -hmm. So many pages. Mm -hmm. Like, do I just put page numbers in the corner and say, turn to page 500? That can't be, right? What if I change the font size? And then now, how do we find the same thing? How do we help people be aimed That's right. when they're looking for something? So this is like all other innovations, uh, more innovation or a new innovation creates problems. Right. That's just how it is. Okay. How do we navigate yeah. this? You know? Yeah. Uh, oh, great. And indoor plumbing. Now we need toilet paper. Oh, we now need toilet paper that doesn't clog our drains. We now right. need, it's like, okay, whatever. So uh, yeah. verses are, chapters and verses are an innovation, Jews and Christians, innovate separately that's why there's some deviation in it it's not an ancient thing just around the time of the printing press mm -hmm. they don't have printed bibles at the time of yeshua they have scrolls at the time of yeshua very wealthy people will have scrolls okay they had very well-known libraries in places like alexandria you would have some places where people maybe could gain access they would almost always be communal you would have to be they would treat these scrolls with very great care okay um, and you'd, you'd have to rely a lot heavily on memorization um, and navigating these scrolls in a public communal space, all right? Then the question becomes, okay, well, we don't have access to the book. We don't have printed Bibles, all right? But let's say we've gained a knowledge of, we'll stick to the book of Psalms, let's say, or the scroll of Psalms, right? Let's be, let's be fair. Let's say as Jews in the time of Yeshua, because that's really all that's concerned here, in his lifetime and up to his death, no Gentiles were approached or brought in, okay? So let's say we're all familiar with the scroll of the Psalms, mm -hmm. but we still face this problem we're facing right now very practically. Brother who's familiar with the scroll of the Psalms, I'm familiar with the scroll of the Psalms, go to Psalm 22. Okay, they can't even do that. There's no chapters and verses. Right. So what do they do? And the answer is very, it's very simple. It's brilliant, okay? If you look at the, uh, this holds for the Jewish names of the books of the Bible. We call it Genesis which is an abstract name in Latin, and it has partly to do with the fact that we have books, so we can name books differently, because we can name what it means, like Genesis, Exodus, which right. means a coming, Genesis means a beginning or a spawning, Exodus means a going out, which des describes the book, numbers, it, there's a lot of numbers in the book. Well, the Jewish names of Genesis is Bereshit, in the beginning, that's kind of like Genesis. Shemot is the name for Exodus, do you know what Shemot means? Names. Well, that's weird. The book of Numbers, which is just a bunch of, a lot of its arrangements and genealogies, the book of Numbers is Bamibah, which means in the wilderness. Uh, why are these books getting these names? Okay, Deuteronomy. Uh, we, Deuteronomy means Deuteros, second time, Namas, law, the second repeating of the law, right? In Hebrew, it's Devarim, it just means words. Uh, yeah. Very simple, scrolls. When you open a scroll, the first words you read are Bereshit. Oh, I know I'm in the right one. Oh, what's the other scroll? I'll open it up. Oh, Shemot. I'm in Exodus because the first word is, and these are the names of the 70 generations. Oh, okay. I open up this scroll. Bamibah, in the wilderness. Oh, okay. I know what scroll I'm in. It's just navigating scrolls. Okay. So they pick the name. By what you firstly see. That's what you right. see the first time, yeah. yeah so it makes, it, it's a quick check. You'd be like, oh, for organizational purposes, I know I'm in the right scroll. Okay. Simple. Yeah. Right? Okay. But now, what do you do with 
uh, compilation books. So, for example, Genesis is a single narrative. Exodus okay. is a single narrative, a single work. Um, all the Torah is single narrative works. It, it becomes more problematic for works like, for example, Proverbs, mm-hmm. okay. Psalms. So with the Psalms, how do we, we have a, a work that we, a book, a scroll, we call the Psalms, but there are 150 of them. Okay. How yeah. do I let people know which one I'm talking about? And the answer is very similar. It's simple and similar to what you do for the entire scroll. Uh, scribes would probably write the first line bigger or demarcate it somehow. They would name the psalm by the first line. So, for example, let's not do Psalm 22. Let's take a step back or ahead, rather, for the sake of the culture. Because most people know Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Mm-hmm. I would say to you, let's go to Psalm 23. If I were in Yeshua's day and I wanted somebody to look at Psalm 23, what would I say? Uh, let's read, my Lord, the Lord is my shepherd. Bingo. That's what you do. That's what you say. The Lord is my shepherd. And this is, it's very interesting. This is very benign for them and direct. So if you read the Mishnah, um, the priests were expected to pray certain Psalms on certain holidays and certain instances. And they would say, okay, for this instance, read, the Lord said, my Lord sit at my right hand. That's Psalm 110. Mm -hmm. Okay. So like they would say, so Paul does this in Corinthians. Hey, remember the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Making an argument in 1 Corinthians 8 that he picks back up in 1 Corinthians Hebrews 10. does that too. All the time. Yeah. And so they, because they don't have chapters and verses. And so when they quote the first, they're not actually saying, just pay attention to this verse. They're saying, go read Psalm 110. Yeah. Go read Psalm uh, 24 in 1 Corinthians 8. Right. Um, and if you don't, if you think that's false, go read Psalm 24 about 1 Corinthians. He actually repeats, the psalm has portions that Paul literally pulls from and repeats later in the chapter. Right. So, but when... When Yeshua is on the cross, that's correct. And he says, "Eli, Eli, mm-hmm. why do they think he's calling out to Elijah?" Okay, so let, that's we, a complicated question. Probably, it is a complicated but, question. It is a complicated question because let's be buttheads here. It, technically, uh, Yeshua, Yeshua does not speak Ivrit or Hebrew. He speaks Aramit, Aramaic. So, sounds, phonemes, words change a little bit. They're like cousin languages, but they're different enough that you won't. You know, is it like Portuguese and Spanish. Almost. Maybe like that. Maybe like Portuguese and Spanish. Maybe a little bit closer, but that's okay. okay. That's a good. That's a very good comparison. So what we'll do is we actually say, and they even change the word. So um, the main verb. So in Hebrew, Eli Eli Lama um, Azavtani becomes Eli Eli. No, Eloi Eloi Lama Sabachtani. Because Eli in Aramaic and Aramaic becomes my God. Eli in Hebrew, okay, becomes Eloi. Eloi, Eloi, okay. Uh, if he is grunting and having a hard time breathing, which he is because of how crucifixion works, they typically take their arms out of socket or make sure that they're taken out of socket because they're stretched, yeah. okay? And then they, you have more, you have a ton of nerve endings in your feet. And so they, they, they stab through your feet and it's very painful. And, and typically all your weight ends up resting on your diaphragm, which slowly suffocates you. And the only way you can breathe is you push yourself up on your feet, which is enormously painful just to get a breath. And so what you've got to do is you've got to pick between breathing or searing pain every time you want to breathe, every time your lungs need air, you pick. That's horrible, right? You're exhausted by that. Now, people who were a fattened calf and maybe they weren't beaten up and they just immediately got crucified, they could last as long as nine days on the cross. Okay. 
it's a humiliating death. The purpose of it is to humiliate, um, and they crucify you naked. Okay, yeah. They crucify you naked on purpose. Uh, now imagine being in this situation, and you didn't go to the fat and calf. You didn't go to it like the fat and calf, okay? Uh, whereas uh, 12 hours before, you were arrested, pushed along a path, taken to a pre-meeting before a big secret meeting. You were beaten in the face by temple guards, spit on. Then you were taken to a main meeting of the Sanhedrin without everyone present. They pull your beard. They t blindfold you. They beat you in the head and the face. They spit all over you. They confine you for over overnight. Very unlikely they're like, here's your cushions and comfortable. So you're tired, you're weak. Early in the morning, they take you to the Herod. Herod, you, Herod uh, interrogates you, which is grueling. They're accusing you. You're standing there listening to them accuse you. You're very tired. Keep in mind, you were tired. He stayed up all night praying the night before us well. Yeah. Uh, his, the, his, his apostles were tired. He was tired. Uh, they, uh, Herod, uh, not Herod, I said Herod, but I meant to say Pilate, Pontius Pilate, okay? He's grueling. You're listening to them accuse you. He's arguing with them. He tries to argue with you. Uh, they, uh, to throw them a bone, he makes a political move, which is really, really devilish and evil. People try to cast Pilate. Pilate is good. No. Uh, he, maybe his wife is good. <laughs> she tries to stop him from doing it because uh, she had a dream about Yeshua. But he then sends you to the Praetorium. A, Praetorium, a, a company of soldiers that could be anywhere from 100 to 250 soldiers. Okay. They clothe you in purple. Okay. To make fun of you. You're naked. Or they strip you naked. Why do they clothe you in purple? They find cl purple cloth to make fun of you. They take Palestinian thorns, which are a very large species, and they put it on your head. And then they take a staff in your hand. They kick you, spit on you. They take turns. Imagine a company of soldiers. Not only soldiers, Goyim and Gentiles in an outpost. This outpost is known throughout the empire for it being a problem of upstarts. The word atheist, atheos without God, is actually first applied to Jews. Because everybody around have idols and they have a god. The Jews don't, they have a box in their temple. They have no god. They're atheists, okay? They're these weird, okay. obtuse people, okay? They do not get along with uh, Romans and they definitely don't get along with Roman soldiers. You have problems of people stabbing Roman soldiers. Someone who's accused, someone who's accu accused of uh, mutiny or sedition or rebellion. If, imagine uh, uh, some of your soldiers and brothers having been killed because the Ascari, who were Jewish bandits, who would stab and kill people, kill Romans with daggers, or, uh, you know, uh, or, or you're spit on, or you're called names as goy, this kind of stuff. Imagine you get your hands on a Jew who you think is leading such a rebellion. Which are the charges that are brought against Yeshua? The charges brought against Yeshua of Pilate are about Caesar. Okay, the, the primary charges that stick, and then you hand them over to a company of a hundred to two to two hundred fifty soldiers of Caesar. How do you think they're going to treat you? They beat the shit out of him. They take a staff. They take it out. Of, they make him stand up and mock him. They knock him down. They hit him in the head with a fucking staff. Okay. He is brutalized. Okay? Then he's made to carry the cross. Okay. He's humiliated by the crowd in the sense of, I don't mean humiliated like he's a weak-willed person. I mean it in the sense of an honorable sense, like without, you know, Without any kind of like, there I think there is such thing as objective humiliation. And after he's beaten and presented to the crowd again, Pilate is trying to satiate their desire for blood, so he puts them in front of him, like in this terrible this, this terrible state. And that's where you get this silly thing where the crowd is screaming and yelling. That's exhausting. These are the same people who yelled Hosanna, save us, save us a week before. 
Now they're crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And he sees the crowd. By the way, abandoned. None of his apostles are on the podium with him. Oh Lord, if I have to die, I'll die with you. Kephas is nowhere, Peter's nowhere to be seen. Okay, alone. And that sense handed over. We're touching, I purposely touched some things that are going to recur yes. in the psalm. Yeah. Very tired. They're not giving you food. Okay, so you're very hungry. Um, you've been beaten. You don't have sleep and you don't have water. You're incredibly thirsty. Now you're, you're forced to carry the, your cross. He does it for a long period, but eventually they prevail on a Jew from Africa, Simon of Cyrene, a dark, probably a dark-skinned Jew. Um, and he carries it the rest of the way. Then they crucify you. They're hurling insults at you for hours. Now, now what I've just depicted, this is a slog. Now we go back to your question. Okay. Mm -hmm. In Hebrew, the word for Elijah is the long formal version is Eliyahu or Eliyah. Mm -hmm. It's just very hard. They're close and hard to see. The descent. You're starting to get to a place where phonemically they're really close. Okay. Yeah. And, and, yeah and, and what's what's incredible about it is one way to, to speak about the Messiah is I believe he's committed to his mission to the very end. So he's speaking in parables and continuing this prophetic mission to be the Messiah in plain sight, but the truth be hidden. And up to the very end, people misunderstand what he's saying. Yeah. To the very end. So now you have an explanation for why do they think he's calling Elijah? It's possibly that it's phonemes, okay, and how weak he is. Uh, and we get the idea that, uh, we do get the phrase that he, with a loud cry, he musters the strength to yell, lama lama. Uh, he says, I'm sorry, Eloi, Eloi, uh, lama sabachthani. He, he quotes, so there, well, actually, no, with a loud cry, he gives his spirit. I don't believe it's said that the loud cry is associated with Psalm 22. Okay. And even so, with a weak, gurgled voice trying to yell, it's still possible for the same phonemic problem to occur. So I'm now given two possibilities for what's going on there, and both lead to the kind of uh, lexeme problem of the similar sounds. Mm. Okay. Um, and let's say we want to go to Psalm 22, now that we have this. We have all this behind under our belt. A question arises before we touch it. When does he say it? At what point through this grueling slog that I've just enumerated, does he say it? Incredibly, he says it at the end, near the end. That matters. He says it near the end. He says it after its contents already are fulfilled. Yeah. Which means something. This is very interesting. Okay. So first, if I say to you, go to Psalm 22. How would I say, go to Psalm 22 in Yeshua's day? Go to, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, and I wouldn't even need to say go to. I could just say the first verse, right? Yeah. Just like I could say Psalm 22, mm -hmm. I would say, uh, I would say, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which would be the Aramaic. In Hebrew, it would be, Eli, Eli, lama azabthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, so we're now at the most important point of this, like, um, the Psalm. So he's, who is he saying it to? Well, first off, he's not saying it to the Goyim. They have no na ability to navigate the Jewish scriptures. He's saying it to Jewish people. The Pharisees are there. The Herodians are there. Okay, They're hurling insults at him. 
you then go to Psalm 22, okay? And we can do that. And what ends up emerging is an incredible, incredible realization for these people. What is that realization? The realization might be something akin to, oh, shit. Yeah. The way that people, and again, it's parabolic. So like they, the idea of let's just read Yeshua of Nazareth based on plain face meaning of his speech that hasn't worked well for you in chapters one through 25. Right. Why would it work for you in chapters 26 and 27 where he's killed? Right. Right. It hasn't worked up to that point. No, 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 guys, I'm dying. So now I'm just going to speak plainly to you. No. To the very end, he's misunderstood. To the very end, he came to fulfill the writings. Okay. And to the very end, he's uh, he's doing his job. Okay. That is <laughs> that is real, Yeshua. <laughs> yeah, it's real. No, real lightning. Okay, great. Um, and and here's what's interesting about this. We get to Psalm 22. Okay. And we have things like words of my groaning. Oh, Moshe, he is groaning. This psalm, by the way, is written hundreds of years before mm -hmm. this supposed Jewish Nazar uh, Nazarene is dying on a stake at the hands of the Romans. Yeah. Hundreds of years, seven to nine hundred years prior. Okay? Um, and, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you far from helping me, far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I call by day and you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Now a problem emerges, who wrote this psalm? And David. Then, David. David. And the question becomes, did he write it? Uh, this is how telescopic prophecy works. You write it about your current events that are happening, and you say, through the, these current events and my experience are a foreshadow of what's going to happen that's similar. Mm -hmm. Whereas you say, just straight up, uh, ecstatic, uh, unassociated prophecy such and such will happen, a, a, a kind of, what do you call this, a prognostication, a pure right. telling of the future. Right. That's not any psalm. The psalms are taken up in prayer in the temple. Yeah. These are, first, they're realized in the heart of the author, then they're handed to the people to be sung and re-experienced in the temple. David doesn't know he's prophesying. Uh, I mean, does he know, or does he know he's talking about in his line? Like Both are possibilities, and we can look at two extremes. One is he has no idea at all. Okay. But I think he does have an idea that he's mm -hmm. under the inspiration of the Holy, uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God on yeah. him. Yeah. So he has no idea at all, or he knows entirely there's 100% what the prognostication is. And right. Means. The Lord said to my Lord, which is like. Sure. There yeah. are obscure Psalms that are written that are like, what in the world? Uh, opaque, strange, whatever. And he could know, man, I don't know what God's putting on me, but I just know it's for the people, whatever. Um, and so David experienced, by the way, he experienced rejection by his own people. He experienced feelings of a sense of being, of despair, of being forsaken by God. Do you love me? Are you still for me? I have your spirit on me. I'm trying to walk with you. By the way, the spirit of God never left David. Not even when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, when he murdered Uriah to cover it up. The Holy Spirit never left. He still says in Psalm 51, another Tehillim, David says, don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. That has deep meaning for him because the Holy Spirit left Shaul in 1 Samuel 16, I believe, and went to David. Mm -hmm. Okay. So not even David loses the presence of God in the midst of great sin. And But in the middle of these difficulties, he's asking, do you love me? Okay. Yeshua takes up this arrangement and this call and rearranges himself through his incarnation in the, as the son of David. 
and re-experiences that turmoil of rejection. David was rejected because he loved God. Yeah. It wasn't like David was well-loved and treated well, and then he messed up, and then he had all the bad treatment. He was mistreated from the start. The youngest of his parents, not even brought in to consideration for who could be the Messiah, just the shepherd left with sheep, okay, despised by his older brothers, younger than everyone, despised by Shaul and feared by him simultaneously and loved by him simultaneously, if you can imagine all three. Um, it just enormously difficult life. Living in desert refuges, on the run as a refugee in ancient times. Not the food problem solved, no disease problem. This is a very difficult time, okay? The Messiah steps into those shoes with that calling. Okay, so first it, it's from David, but then we have to say, how is this happening with the, how is this happening with the Messiah? Okay, mm -hmm. and um, we can say, oh my God, I call by day, you do not answer by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy and thrown in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted you. They trusted and you delivered them. There's this anticipation of deliverance and salvation. Okay, they cried to you and were saved. They trusted you and were not ashamed. Okay, this, is, this touches the idea of Hebrews 12. He considered the shame of the cross. He is naked. According to the Torah, he is cursed to be hung on a tree. Okay, and he, count, he, he reconciled, he looked at that shame, that scorn, and set it aside and set his mind on the joy set before him. He's in keeping with the psalm already. Okay, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by God. Nope, doesn't say that. I'm going to read it again. I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by humankind and despised by people. Despised by people. Humans are so deceitful and so evil. Our hands will be the instrument of the destruction of our neighbor. And we'll say, oh, God was so opposed to them. Look at how they were destroyed. Just like Aaron said, I put these uh, gold earrings in the fire and out came this calf. Your hands made that fucking calf. Mm -hmm. Your hands did this to your Messiah. Okay? That's all of us and your, not just the Jews, yeah. the Goyim, the Gentiles together laid hands on him. This is not, a, I'm not making this into an anti-Semitic thing. The Jew of Jews is dying on behalf of all people, okay? Um, and at the hands of all the sons of Adam represented. So I'm despised, I'm scorned by humankind, despised by people. All who see me mock me. They open wide their lips. They shake their heads saying, he trust Yahweh or Adonai the Lord if Pharisees were reading this. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him because he delights in him. That's They literally said that to him. That that would actually be helpful if you would go to Matthew. You could find that in Matthew and see what are the Pharisees saying? What are the people they're saying? They are saying uh, let's see by the way, just as a, a kind of like... They say, the one who would destroy... And those who passed by reviled him, shaking their heads and saying... This is Matthew 27, verses 39 um, onward. And saying, the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from that cross. Um, it literally says, continuing on, the chief priests, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, he saved others. He is not able to save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now if he wants to, because he said, I am the son of God. Okay. 
pause. That is so laden. The priests, the elders in Yerushalayim, Pharisees are there, likely Herodians are there, different gospels give different flavors and aspects of it. They, I'm going to read Psalm 22 again. All who see me mock me. They open wide their lips. They shake their head saying he trusts in Adonai or in God. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him because he delights in him. The thing here is, does the father delight in the son? Mm -hmm. Oh, you're the son? God would delight in the son. At the baptism, at the, at the water baptism of Yeshua, John, a true prophet of Israel and a leader, he has a vision and he sees the Holy Spirit descend on Yeshua in the form of a dove and he hears a voice. My beloved son, whom I delight in. My chosen one. At the baptism, the water baptism of Yeshua, the Father speaks and gives his judgment. I delight in you. The Messiah said to James and John when they were arguing about who is the greatest among the twelve, can you be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Ignorant teenagers, 20-year-olds. Yes, Lord, we can. <laughs> you will be baptized with the baptism. <laughs> baptism I'm baptized you with. It, but yeah. whether you can sit on my left or right, it's not up to me but to my Father. So at the precursor shadow baptism, the water baptism of Yeshua, the Father changes his judgment on him. That, that phrase keeps getting repeated. I delight in you. My beloved son with whom I am well pleased or who I delight in, my chosen one. It's said at the transfiguration. It's said at the first water baptism. In ways it's echoed at his birth in Luke. Said at the baptism. Said at, uh, it alluded, well, let's go in order. Uh, reconstruct, you can reconstruct it in the Lucan birth narrative. It's loosely alluded to in his 12-year-old narrative at the temple. It's directly uttered over him at the baptism. It's said again at the transfiguration. Now his actual baptism into the waters of Sheol or death. The judgment is not yet said or the problem is they have ears but can't hear and eyes but can't see. Mm. And they scorn and they despise and they mock. Even then the father delights in him. Okay. And it's said by Paul to have been declared over him at his death, at his resurrection. Paul quotes it as being applicable to his ascension, and Paul quotes it as being applicable to his enthronement, as, do the, as does the author of Hebrews, which I don't think is Paul. Okay? Mm -hmm. So now we go back to this. Let him deliver him because he delights in him. Mm -hmm. the, the people watching and not getting it say the pieces. They actually take the, the assembled pieces of testimony and warp them. They see that he's trying to, tr he says he trusts in God. And they know that, that, that he, he is saying, I'm, God delights in me and I'm his son. Which again is a very Davidic, that's still a Davidic concept, you know. Um, David has that idea as a refugee, as one who's scorned, as one who's put aside. Um, as one whose family even might look the other way while he's in that refugee status. Um, and, and being hunted. Um, he will say in another psalm, in Psalm 69, even my father and mother forsake me. He will never forsake me. Same lemma. That's Psalm mm -hmm. 22. Mm -hmm. Though my father and mother forsake me, he will never forsake me. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, that, that concept is in our next verse, verse 9. Yet you, the speaker says, yet you took me from the belly. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. On you I was cast from the womb. From my mother's belly you have been my God. Now this takes on an, uh, a bizarre 
meaningfulness in the Messiah, Yeshua, because of the strange narratives and, and the, the, the trustworthy kind of vouched narratives that the early Jesus movement shared about the peculiarity of his birth, that while uh, the phrase uh, Ben Elohim, the son of God, had many, many meanings, all of Israel is called his son, and an exodus to the Egyptians, the sons of Aaron are peculiarly called God's sons, B'nai Elohim, angels are called God's sons. Um, you know, the idea of Isaiah saying, if, if even if Avraham denies us, you are our father, we're your sons and your children. So these ideas are there. But the son of God, not a son of God, the son of sons, almost like the book, the Song of Songs. The son of sons, even his birth was peculiar and strange. And there's reasons for that. I'm not going to get into that. But that is in that is how the New Covenant authors thought of him. And so this psalm is so laden with that idea. I mean, he's the one who the, the father is responsible for him being in Miriam, in Mary. Mm -hmm. And he's appealing to that past. Okay. Um, On you I was cast from the womb, from my mother's belly you have been my God. Okay. Now verse 11 is, do not be far from me. That's a cry. He's telling him, don't be far from me. Do not be far from me. Because trouble is near. Because there is no helper. Let's be clear. He's telling God not to be far from him. And he's saying there's no helper. That if God is the one who is included and there is no helper, then it makes no sense to say, do not be far from me. Again, he's talking about people. And again, he had arranged himself for help. The night before in Gethsemane, he told his disciples, stay awake and be vigilant and pray. Seats nine of them on the edge of the garden where he goes to pray. A stone's throw away from them. Puts his three who are his chief witnesses. Kephas, Peter, and the sons of Zebedee. And then he goes a stone's throw away from them. Okay, He sought help for this cup to pass. Okay, mm -hmm. they, There is no helper. Not even his people who are supposed to be his ministers are there to help him. This is still peculiar fulfillment in the Messiah. And the Messiah is still waiting on God to help him. Okay, now, Will his cry be heard is a refrain I'm going to repeat over and over again. Will his cry be heard? Will his cries be heard? Okay, um, verse 12, many bulls have encircled me, mighty bulls of Bashan have surrounded me. Again, this is speaking about, this is the unseen realm in part, it's touching it, the bulls of Bashan. Bashan is spoken of, it's it's synony, It's a region, uh, it's associated with Mount Hermon, Hermon, okay, like a, a, a Mount Bashan or Mount Hermon. Um, it's where the gods descended to create a rebellion in some readings. Yeah. Look at Psalm 82. Yeah. Okay, it's associated with um, evil. And the unseen thrones allying themselves with pagan thrones. The mighty bulls of Bashan here very much so speak to dark Elohim and and likely uh, in, in allegiance with empirical Gentiles, which would be the Romans. Okay, there, there's that idea that they're surrounded by them. You also have the idea that bulls are referencing their leaders. Okay. You could say there's different ways to read this. Because of the Bashan background, they're associated with pagan Elohim and dark dark spiritual forces but because they're called bulls which are clean animals it's likely it's possible as well to read them as leaders priests so Je jewish priests who are in who are now acting in league with bashan is one way to read it mm -hmm. okay there's different ways to read that but mm -hmm. it is speaking of something that's going on in the spiritual realm now the reference to the the reference to an animal okay may lead may have lend credence to the way that 13 gets troubled we're, we're now moving on to verse 13 it's jarbled, and I'm going to speak to it. They open their mouth against me like a lion, tearing and roaring. 
Okay. There are scribal problems with this verse. Okay. What we have in the Old Testament is, is based on primarily what's called the Masoretic text, the received text of the Masoretes, a group of Jewish people who preserved the Hebrew Old Testament. This verse doesn't match the Septuagint. So as they pierced my hands and feet or dug into my hands and feet. The Dead Sea Scrolls, which is also written in Hebrew, says they dug into my hands and feet. Let's just focus on one word here because we saw the animals before. There's a type of scribal recension error that's likely behind it. So I don't want to accuse the scribes of purposefully warping this. Okay, you have letters. Kaf, Aleph, Resh, Yod. Or Kaf, Aleph, Resh, Vav. A Yod is just a tiny chuk and a Vav is a straight line. Handwritten, which is what they would have done, no print, no type, yods and vavs often switch each other. And if you change the vav, if it was originally a vav, it means they've dug into or bored into. If you change that vav into a yod, it is ka'ari, like a lion. Hmm. So we have a scribal problem here. And I would argue the more ancient texts, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which predate the Masoretic text by thousands of years, Okay, or at the very least, we'll say on a conservative end, seven, eight hundred years, or on the bigger end, twelve fifty to five, fifteen hundred years prior. Okay, because the I think the earliest complete Masoretic text we have is I think it's like the Leningrad Codex, if I'm not mistaken, and it's only it, it dates to a thousand A.D. Okay, so the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, some of those scrolls that were discovered are possibly two hundred years before the time of Yeshua. Mm -hmm. Okay, those scrolls say they've dug into my hands and my feet. Now, here's what's interesting about this. This is wildly, wildly um, pertinent for Yeshua of Nazareth. Okay? Um, uh, let's, uh, and we can actually touch this because I touched the idea of Psalms and chapters and verses in Gutenberg. When the Jews first approached Gentile owners of printing press, okay, printing presses, whatever, um, they tried to set out Hebrew Bibles that were printed. And one of the very first historical examples of this, there is actually a historical um, story around this. There's a controversy. Uh, and when uh, it was famously said by a Jew who was trying to fund it to a Gentile printer, okay, or to uh -huh. a printer in, who was willing to do business with Jews, okay, which by itself is already a rarity. Right. If you keep, if you put, uh, if you don't put like a lion, if you put a vav instead of that yod, no right-minded Jew will buy it. It's already a, this is already a controversy by the time of the Gutenberg press. Okay. Okay, so that's that's way fast forward. But they're aware of this controversy because Christian polemicists had quoted that verse and argued against the Masoretic text, whatever. So for now, we're going to say that textually, okay, I don't care if it says like a lion tearing and roaring. Another way to translate it is like a lion, they have mauled my hands and my feet. Okay, so I don't care if it's... it's and this is, sorry, this is Mount, verse 13 or 16? This is verse 13. Wow. 13, okay. Yeah, verse 13. Patsuel IPM. Ariel, okay. Toref, interesting. Toref ve seig. Okay. It's just, it's just so interesting. Okay. Um, so what we have for now is hands and feet targeted, dug into. That makes this incredibly weird because crucifixion wasn't even practiced in the times of David. The closest thing you get to it is the Assyrians who impale. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, but crucifixion is a Roman practice. Right. So you have the hands and feet targeted. Okay, keep in mind a, a developing sequence. I want to put forward a weird idea, and I need it to be available to people on the front end as they're thinking through this. What if the Messiah is brazen until the end? I, I want to give you a trope. Have you ever seen a, a movie like Snatch? You have like Boris the... <laughs> Don't bring it up. Or you haven't seen it? I haven't seen it. Okay, okay. So, oh, like, no. <laughs> like, stay on track. I don't know. Like, stay on track. <laughs> okay. The, well, in this movie, uh, there's this funny character. It's a Guy Ritchie movie. It's absurd. But there's this guy called Boris the Russian, and he takes bullets. He gets hacked. He gets duct taped. He gets shot. He gets thrown out of a car. He, and he's still alive, <laughs> coming back to try to kill you. He never dies, okay? Uh, and there's all, that's a trope in movies where there's a guy who's like, he just takes forever to die. He's like, no, never give in. It's even a thing in Monty Python where someone just like yeah. refuses to die. Right. And refuse, even in the very last, they're la- they, they refuse to give in to the insult that's being put on them and they're brazen. Right. I want to imagine that the Messiah is like that. Mm-hmm. Because he does that in his earthly ministry when he speaks about their misunderstanding of God's ways, God's kingdom, and his scriptures. I mean, read Matthew 23. He says some really heavy stuff in Jerusalem. Now suddenly he's just backing down and scared and sad. Now, a lot of people will interpret it that way. And there's great sadness in this. The sadness is he longed to take the children of Jerusalem under his wing and love them. He wept over them that week. They're now being tools of the bulls of Bashan, of leaders, and they're putting him to death. But I will say this. He waits until all of this psalm is fulfilled to do what is said in Hebrew and modern Hebrew or in, I think maybe Yiddish it's called a davka a twist of the knife mm-hmm. <laughs> to twist the knife mm-hmm. and say he doesn't say read Psalm 22 until all of it's fulfilled and it becomes a problem because what he's saying is you don't realize it you just did it you enthroned me now if you go back to read what they said about him they mentioned this is Israel's king the kingdom of God blah 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 this kind of stuff building the temple uh if, God, if you trust in God, let God save him, whatever. This psalm is going to get hyper-specific. They've dug his hands and his feet. He's on a cross with his hands and his feet dug into, bored into. Okay? Verse 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. A common practice for crucifixion to ensure the torture of it is to pop shoulders out of joint. Not to break bones immediately, but to pop out of joint. Okay? bones to cause them to sag and hang okay my heart is like wax it's melted within me this is just like wasting away but also the the idea of heat and being broken down resolve broken down and we know it's partly physical and exhaustion related because of verse 15 because heart often lave is often the source of strength and the animus inside of a person and it's idea that it's wax melting is the idea that the resolve is being worn down Mm -hmm. through the intensity of heat and trial okay um verse 15 my strength is dry like a potsherd and my tongue is sticking to my jaws he is thirsty okay he is thirsty you have placed me in the dust of death Okay. Now the question becomes, see, God did it. You have placed me in the dust of death. He has handed him over to these people who are attacking him. Yeah, it's not Destroying him. him. It's not him. This is a plea for rescue. Yes. Because if we read, you have placed me in the dust of death in light of... He's talking about the people. Do not be far from me. He's talking about the people. He's saying, look at what's happening. You've placed me here. 
in their hands. This is what their hands are doing. Again, the hearken, do not be far from me, is his cry. Mm-hmm. Show that you delight in me. Yeah. Okay? Reveal that. Verse 16. Because dogs have surrounded me, a gang of evildoers has encircled me. Again, sorry, I messed up. I mixed up. I, I did mix up 13 and 16. We do have an animal there. I totally mixed up. Sorry. Uh, I was like, why does it say, why, why mm-hmm. here does it say tearing and roaring? And I backed off of it. I know that there's an animal illusion. So what I said about 13, uh, because you have the animal, the bull, Bashan, you also have the lion who is a leader who is destroying and a predator who predates, tearing and roaring. It makes sense why, that's what I meant to say, it makes sense with the animal illusion why in 16 they would say, like the lion, there yeah. are my hands and feet. In, in Sorry. Logos, it actually says, to reiterate the former, the point you were making, it says, or they gouge out, or they bind, not the same word for lion, found yep. in verse 14, 22. The Hebrew text presents such problems that any interpretation must be lightly held. Bingo. That's what it, it, it bingo, says. Bingo, bingo. Yeah, so you can see the reason why based on 13, some a scribe would say, ah, it's kari, not karu. Okay, mm-hmm. or karu, like the idea of they, they bind or they pierce or they bore. Really, they bore yeah. into. Okay, but let's, uh, and it makes sense too. Why the parallelism? Dogs, lion, right? Because dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has encircled me. But here's a problem you're going to have with, well, how do we know it's not just lion? And this is just a Christian thing. This is a good point to do a grammatical argument. I don't, and I liked it on the podcast. Like you were seeing like, oh, there was confusion. I messed up a verse. I, I, there's no problem with that. I want to work through the text. We have here, ki uh, sevavuni. Okay. The u is they. It's third person masculine plural. They are surrounding me. Kelavim as dogs, plural. Im, not a dog, like a dog, like dogs, plural again. Okay. Adat Mereim, a congregation of evildoers, an assembly of evildoers. Can't be one person. Can't be one person. Can't be one person. So we've got third person masculine plural, third person masculine plural, third person masculine plural. Okay. Or this one is the assembly is a feminine word, but it's the idea of masculine plural for the evildoers. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then encircles me. Again, plural. They do it. And now we have, like the lion, hands and feet. <laughs> That's literally the direct translation is. Yeah. Like, like the lion, my mm-hmm. hands and feet. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and the idea here for encircles me, which is interesting, is strike off, go around, compass. Okay. If we change the yod to a vav, then suddenly something else happens. It is they. It's another verb that's third person masculine, plural. They bore into my hands and my feet. Otherwise, it makes no sense. Ka'ari is like a like the lion. If that's if it's a yod, not a vav, the way that uh, some have tried to translate it, the Masoretic text says, like the lion, my hands and feet of me. No, sorry, hands of me and feet of me. Which is like okay, suddenly a single line just needs to be drawn down further, and it's they bored into my hands and my feet. Yeah. So it's, it's resolved. So, uh, uh, but but again, we can touch this idea of dogs, okay? Uh, and I actually think it's important here because uh, one thing that I would argue is you do have the bulls question. But Sean speaks of Gentiles, at least their gods, to a degree. Okay, bulls could speak to leaders. A lion could speak to leaders, or it could speak to Gentiles because it's a predator. Okay, you can't offer it as a sacrifice. Verse sixteen would be almost you would almost exclusively think of it as a as Gentiles or people who behave as Gentiles. And it is the common term for Gentiles. The Messiah uses this term. 
As much as people don't like derogatory terms, parabolically, Yeshua says to a Gentile woman, a Syrophoenician, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. It was Samaritan. Yeah. It was a Gentile. But she says, Gentile. And, and she says, but even the dogs live on the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Very humble. Okay, Gentiles. It's a word for Gentiles. He is, liter he is surrounded by Gentiles. And, what a, and what's interesting is, um, when we shift to dogs, I actually think 16, 17, 18 need to be read together. What are these Gentile dogs doing? I can count all my bones. They, don't, they have not broken my bones. I can count all my bones is used also in Psalm 34. It's a phrase to mean none of the bones are broken. That's sacrificially important. A Passover sacrifice should not have its bones broken. Can't have its bones broken, any of them. He's a Passover sacrifice. This is Passover that this is happening. These Gentile dogs are surrounding him. His bones are not broken. They gaze, they look at me. They are. Verse 18, still the dogs. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is literally happening to Yeshua of Nazareth. You can imagine at this point, like I said, that idea of what if this is a Davka? What if this is him not giving in to their judgment of him? but entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. You may have judged me and said that you have won. Judgment but it just confirms it to him and everybody because it's like... Oh, yeah. You haven't seen judgment. If you think this is my father's judgment, you just fulfilled Psalm 22. Read to the end. And that's what we're doing right now together. So literally, they cast lots for Yeshua's clothing. Um, uh, they divide my lots among my garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots. Yeshua had a nice garment that was sewn. It's something about the inseam and the way that it was made in ancient times made it valuable. These soldiers gambled and cast lots to see if he can get his clothes. He's naked. Okay. Um, uh, 19. But you, O Yahweh, or Adonai, you, O Yahweh, do not remain distant. Again, a plea. 19, again, this is over and over again. Verse 14, they trusted, or verse 4, they trusted and delivered them. Or verse 2, I called you because I want you to answer me. Mm -hmm. uh, they trusted you. Verse 4, uh, verse uh, 11, do not be far from me. We're back to the same idea. He has not given up on this idea. 19, but you, he's comparing Yahweh to the dogs. He's comparing Yahweh to the humans surrounding him. And over and against them. But you, O Yahweh, you, O Adonai, do not remain distant. O my help, hasten to help me. Let's go back to that. Verse 11. Do not be far from me because trouble is near because there is no helper. Mm -hmm. Okay, there is no helper. I'm going to look at that word just to double down. I know it's extra, but. Okay, don't be far. Trouble, a, a, a narrow place, trouble. A narrow place. I'm hemmed in. It's a narrow, tight place. Trouble, Kerova, it's near. Okay, it's descending on me. Ki ein ozer. Because here in this narrow place where trouble is descending, no, there is no help here. Okay, the word is ozer, which is helper, where we get the word ezer, right? Azar, yeah, okay. Uh, and then we get to our verse, verse 19, which is again, an, he doesn't stop asking for it. He's never changed his mind. A reiteration. Veata. Okay, you. And, and in Hebrew, it's unnecessary to use the pronoun here. He does it to stress it. You, I'm talking to you, is what the Hebrew says. Ve'ata, Yahweh. al tirchak. you don't be far. You, you don't be far from me, is the conjugation of the mm -hmm. verb. Um, and then we have, e'aluti, my strength. You're my strength. Le'ezrati, and the helper to me, chusha, hurry up. Yeah. It's time sensitive. Hurry up. Okay. Verse, uh, verse 20, okay? And actually what we ought to do is, again, 16 is dogs. 20, 16 to 20 is about these Gentiles. Rescue my life from the sword. 
These are soldiers. They literally have swords. They are the metaphorical sword of the government yeah. and empire. Rescue my life from the sword. My only life from the power of the dogs. Okay? <laughs> it's literally unfolding and happening. Okay? And he has not, he's not saying, oh, it's according to the plan that you rejected me before all time and all your wrath is on me. You've turned your face away from me and, and I've become sin. None of that is here. On the contrary. Again, 21, the plea. Save me from the mouth of the lion. From the horns of the wild oxen. Answer me. He's being gored and stabbed. He's being attacked and mauled. Okay? The irony is, is verse 16, even if the lion, it should be karu, they bore my hands and feet, but even if it's like the lion, it still has the problem that a predator is destroying his hands and feet. Yeah. And he's being asked, save me from their mouth. What is he, when you say save me from their mouth, does it mean they've touched you or they haven't touched you yet? Uh, save me from their mouth. That means they haven't. They, I would or say. Or they have. They have because it doesn't say save me from yeah. their running or save me because they're close. Earlier oh, he's they're saying like they're close. Up they're on close. You. Oh, they're on him already. Like yeah. meaning snatch me out of the lion's mouth. This is shepherd language. Literally, sometimes if you have, some animals have enough wool or coat, if you catch a predator quick enough with a stick or a rock, you can retrieve a sheep from the mouth of a predator. Okay, a wild animal that's tearing apart, or a wild oxen goring. You can rescue. He's saying, "I'm already being attacked now." Okay, um, and then this is what's incredible. Verse twenty-two. Is going to be uh, an actually 20, Psalm twenty-two. <laughs> yeah, I know. Verse twenty-two of Psalm twenty-two. The twenty-one is answer me, and what's going to be that answer? Verse twenty-two. This is what I'm going to do for you, because twenty-two is he believes he's going to be answered. He believes he's going to be answered with a salvation, with rescue. I will tell your name to my brothers, which is bizarre, because God's name is. The name of God is a person. The name of God is the Son of God. This is parabolic and deep. I will proclaim your name. By proclaim, the name of God is a person in the Old Testament. Where Deuteronomy 12, it says, Build a place for my name to dwell. Build a place for my name to dwell. Carry the ark. The name of Yahweh sits on it. Okay? The name of Yahweh is near. In the Targums, even, the name is, is synonymous with the Memorah, or the Word, or the uh, Shekhinah, the, 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 the tabernacling presence. Yeah. And He is the name of God. Okay, so I will proclaim your name. All right, this is where it starts to become telescopic prophecy. Okay, because the name Yahweh, they don't say the name Yahweh in the in the days of Yeshua, and the the reclamation of the presence of God in the temple, destroy this temple, I'll build it up through you. The reclamation of the, the the reclaiming of the name of God coming into the temple is synonymous with the proclamation of the name Yeshua. He's the return of the name of God to the temple, okay? Yeah. I will tell your name to my brothers inside the assembly. I will praise you, the church, the assembly. Okay. You who fear or revere Yah, praise him. Glorify him. Make him heavy, all you seed of Yaakov, Jacob. And be in fear of him, all you seed of Israel. Now, with the, with the events prior, you can see why. Watch verse 24. Because he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. The, the, the primary teaching of 
different versions of PSA, penal substitutionary atonement, is God despises and is repulsed by his son becoming sin and pours out all of his rejection and wrath on him. That's despicable. And right here, it directly in scripture. It's like Yeshua <laughs> covered that. <laughs> okay. And here's what's interesting, because we get a tall of it. That's just the first clause. This clause is, the, verse 24 is the most damning clause in a PSA reading of Psalm 22. Okay, a penal substitutionary atonement, a punishment reading. Of, of so if you remember, against penal substitutionary atonement, yeah. Psalm 22, verse 24. That's right. Because he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted and has not hid his face from him. It is incredible that people believe this, that both. Psalm 22 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament and tells us about Jesus' Messianic psalm. And God hid his face from him because he became sin. He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hid his face from him, but he listened to him. Here's what's incredible about verse 24. He listened to him when he cried for help. I don't know how much further to differentiate between God and what those people were doing to the Messiah than this. Okay? Kilovazah, you have not despised. Literally, this is the verb used in Isaiah 53, nivzeh. It's repeated twice. He was despised. He was despised. People are like, yeah, he became sin and God. No! He has not despised. Uh, or detested, like a disgusting thing. This is an emphatic statement. The torment of the afflicted. The putting down an oppression, tor oppressive torment of the afflicted one. Yeshua is the afflicted one. And he didn't hide his face from him. Sorry, it might be shav-o. That's a weird pointing here. Shav-o, which means a cry for help or a scream. And his scream, the scream of him, elav shamea. Shamea is interesting because it's in the call and it means it's perfect. He's done it in the past. When we say Shema Yisrael, Hero Israel, the word here is most times, it's not most times, many times, and particularly in a legal context, or in a context where we're talking about Yahweh and covenant, okay? Yeah. In the context of Yahweh and covenant, here most times takes on the meaning of obey. Right. Obey God. In many places in your Bible, they will translate it as obey, and you'll be like, oh, obey God's statutes. Here, here, here God's statute. I'm going to make it even more clear. He heard, he didn't hide his face from him. And his cry for help, God obeyed. A softer way to translate it is he attended to it and acted it, for the cry to help. Not through all the stuff that was going on to him, but through something that was coming, a cry for help, the response to the cry for help. Okay, verse 25, from you is my praise. This is this author speaking to God. From you is my praise. In the great assembly, I will pay my vows before those who fear him. I will pay my vows means this. I'm coming through this on the other end. And when I do, I'm going to use, I'm going to bring a shlamim, which is a votive offering, a free will offering, a thanksgiving offering. We're going to celebrate because everything that I vowed to do, everything that I put in front of you and moved in, you're going to see me through this out to the other side. I'm going to be giving thanks. Okay. Um, it's victory. Yeah. I will pay my vows before those who fear him, meaning the ones who hear about these events and they fear God and they recognize him. He'll be in their midst praising with him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Well, who's the afflicted here? And what's the word for afflicted? Verse 26. Yochlu anvim, the poor. Okay. 
the poor, the put down. These are words that are related to the word for he is not despised um, the cry of the afflicted. So the afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Again, why? Because their vows and it's a shlamim. Well, where's the meat? What's the feast? Do you want to know one of the earliest types? It's a prototype that's related to the shlamim. Because other offerings you don't eat. The sons of Israel don't eat them. The priests do, or God does, this kind of thing. The shlamim is everybody eats. Pesach is a prototypical shlamim. The Passover sacrifice is slaughtered. God gets a piece, priests eat, and Israel eats, and they're satisfied. Okay, the ones who are fearful. So the ones who are faithful, fearful, revere him. Okay. Those who seek him will praise Yah. Now that you can read this as those who seek Yah will praise Yah. Or yeah. those who seek the one who is delivered will praise Yah. Both are possible. May your heart live forever. We now have a reference to this. May your heart live forever. Here's the problem with this. May your heart live forever. I am not aware of any example of God, uh, eternality, being connected to God's anthropomorphism. May your heart live forever. I would argue that the phrase, Yechi levavchem la'ad, may it, your heart, your hearts live forever. It's you, plural. May your hearts live forever. This is not about God, okay? It's about those who join in and feast. They're promised a kind of eternal life. May your hearts live on forever. And who gets to live on forever? Anavim, the poor, the afflicted. Okay? One of the things about Mashiach is he says there's only going to be one sign, the sign of Yonah, the sign of Jonah. Yeah. Yonah means dove, the sign of the dove. But John saw dove descend on him already. Or What is a dove? A dove is the offering of a poor person. Mm-hmm. It's poverty. I don't have the bull to give to you, but I love you with everything I have. I'm going to give you this dove. He is the dove. He is the poor man's representative and the weak one, the afflicted one's representative. They will be with him and they will rejoice. Okay? Um, and then we're in verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yah. Now this is bizarre. All the ends of the earth will rem- will be all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yah. Even more telling in the times of Yeshua, they would not say the name Yah, they would say Adonai. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Adonai, which means the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeshua almost immediately early on in the early Jesus movement, exclusively among Jews, Yeshua is declared to be Adonai. He is placed as a Lord and Adonai. This is a problem for a lot of people because it doesn't just mean, oh, a Davidic king. It has it, it is a replacement for the divine name. Okay. And all the ends of the earth includes Gentiles. Mm-hmm. This is a, this is to say that the reversal for this servant this experience the psalmist is writing about will have implications for the end of all the ends of the earth. They will remember and turn to Yahweh. All the families of the nations will worship before you. Can you worship before Yahweh without a temple in the, in the Jewish conception? No. No. You need an altar. You need a temple. Literally, the, this idea that he died with the, the concept of temple. Oh, you'll tear down the temple and build it in three days. He himself is the temple. What does the temple house? The name of God. Okay. Mm. He is the house. And all the families of the nations will join and they will meet with Yahweh by meeting with him. This is deeply pregnant with new covenant apostolic interpretation. And these ideas prevail and dominate in the New Testament. This is how apostles and apostolic writings in the New Covenant are interpreting the Old Testament. Okay. And then 
Verse 28, this is about the kingdom. Again, oh, you're a king of Israel. You're the king. Because the kingship belongs to Yah. He rules over the nations. And now we can replace it in the time of Yeshua because the kingship belongs to the Lord or Adonai. He rules over all the nations. It is the kingdom of God. This was the kingdom of the Lord. And then you end up with this interesting thing with this duality of Lord and God. What's already present, because if you replace the name God, Elohim, and Yahweh, you connect them. There's already a duality in the, um, in the Torah prior to the exile. And one, Elohim tends to emphasize God in the heavens, and Yahweh tends to emphasize the covenant-keeping God at work in the earth with covenant heads. Mm -hmm. Okay, It's the name of Yah. And so the name speaks to locality and the kingdom on the earth. Okay? Right. Now, what's interesting about this is um, that duality makes its way into the Shema so that we have the idea that the replacement, God just stays as God and the replacement of the divine name becomes Lord. And so there's like two, at the very least, two functions that become Echad, become one. Right. The phrase God is one with the phrase Lord, but they're different functions. One speaks to the heavenly function, one speaks to the earthly function. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you can, uh, this type of interpretation of who is Yeshua of Nazareth, this is the burning question. The, what they did to him, they would never have done to him what they've done in the psalm if they knew who he was. Right. And so some of this is going to be a reckoning. They're going to actually reveal who he is. Kingship belongs to the Lord. He is the, Yeshua is the king of Israel, just like he said. But it goes further, just as David was promised. Yahweh made a covenantal promise to him. You will, from you will come a line that rules all the nations. And the covenant I made to Abraham ended at the, the river, Hanahar, Parat, the river Euphrates. Your covenant will begin at the river Euphrates and go to the ends of the earth. It's also the same covenant they promised. You'll build a temple for my name to dwell. This is the fulfilling of the Davidic promise. Okay. Verse 29, all the healthy ones of the earth will eat and worship. Okay. Um, prosperous ones, literally fat ones. Okay. Yeah. So the, the phrase there, um, they'll eat and they'll worship all the fat ones of the earth. Okay. Lefanav uh, before him. This is interesting. Okay, Lifne Yichru before him. They will kneel. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Yahweh is Lord. No. That Yeshua is Adonai. That Yeshua is Lord. This idea is about this this King. And even if you take away. The, I, I think they're essential, these divine echoes. Even without looking at those divine echoes, it has to be the Messiah because it's an overturning of his rejection. Knees will bow to the one that you've killed. This naked, scorned thing that's not even looking like a human form anymore because it's beaten to a pulp. You'll kneel before mm -hmm. him. Okay. And who will do that? A reiteration, a parallelism at the end. Kol yordei afar, all those who go down. Yordei, descend afar, descend into the dust. Those who die. Now, one way to say it is descend into the dust is uh, a, a very hyperbolic picture of someone who hishtachavuz, because the verb at the beginning is ochlu vehishtachavu, they will eat and they will bow down prostrate. And so the idea of yordei afar, descend to the dust, can literally mean they drop to the ground in the dust to, to, to worship and bow before the ones that they were ridiculing. Okay, But it has deeper implications because the idea of Yoreid Afag descending in the dust is the curse on Adam and mankind. It's about yeah. death. 
So it's, again, may you live forever was already repeated. This victory, there's a victory about this that's over death. Ve'nafshoh lo chiyah. Okay? Um, and before all those descending in the dust will kneel, even the one who's unable to keep his soul alive. <laughs> it, it, I'm not able to keep my soul alive. Bingo. And so the idea is, well, there's two ways to think of this. The one who can't keep his soul alive is the poor and afflicted in the land where the, the guy who bears the sword just unfairly and cruelly oppresses them and they right. can't guard their own life. There's a very real um, aspect of that. Mm. But the, there's a deeper read on this, which is we are all descending into death. When you just universalized it because you read it in the plain text, meaning that's true of everyone. Nobody gets the right to live. Everybody descends to death. This alludes to the one who's able to do that, the one that they're bowing before, does deserve to live, not die. And he will. The resurrection is in this psalm. Not just the resurrection, because already in this psalm, and already with the Jewish authors of the New Covenant, and it gives me chills, already in the psalm, and already in the, 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 the Jewish authors of the New Testament, the reason the Messiah was resurrected was to share resurrection. He experienced and tasted death on our behalf to go through it on the other side and then offer his resurrection to us to give us life. Yeah. Okay? And that's already in this. This is the gospel. Okay? And and then the, the uh, we have here, I believe we have verse, uh, the last two verses are 30 and 31. Verse 30 is, and this is interesting, Zera ya'avadenu, no, sorry. Ya'avdenu. Zara ya'avdenu. Okay. The seed, or posterity descendants, seed. Okay. Third masculine singular. Seed, they uh, seed they will serve, or seed will serve him. Okay. Seed will serve him. It's the call and perfect. Seed will serve him. All right. Descendants will serve him. This is really important because he's the son of David. He, he offers the seed of David. The question of how does the Messiah... Father people, does the Messiah, Father people. This is an Old Testament concept. This is not a Catholic, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit concept. The word for a head, covenantal head, is Father. Even if they're not in your bloodline, you would call a prophet. If you were a disciple of a prophet, you would call him Father. Elisha calls Eliyahu, Father, Father. Okay. Um, David would be called a father to people. Shaul would be addressed as Father. Okay. Even kings would address prophet, oh, Father. This, this idea of fathership. Isaiah 53 I'm sorry, Isaiah speaks to the idea of David being a father for all of Israel and a tent that people can come under and his seed will rise up out of the stump, okay? And he will be called everlasting father, Isaiah 9 says, okay? Uh, Isaiah 38 says, he will, and a father will declare his faithfulness to the next generation. This idea gets picked up in the New Testament with the notion of being born again. And not only that, the bizarre psalm that correlates to the idea of the seed of the Messiah, the son of David, is Psalm 110. And Messiah, again, as a side note here before we wrap this up, okay, is uh, when he is when he's questioned and grilled and beats everybody publicly and when they try to trap him, he does what we're talking about. He says, go to Psalm 110, except he says, the Lord said, my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. He says, let's, let's consider this song. Who, who is the son of, who, whose son is the Messiah? Oh, David's. Why does David call him Lord? If he's his son. A, a, a question about that is the Lord or Master. And we're like, okay, we think of it like abstractly like, oh, he's God in the person. But you actually can hear it in just in the 
the physical, which would cause confusion. Yeah. Is he David's... Two lords. Well, like... the two lords is confusing, but the, the, another question. Is he David's father or David's son? Is he father or is he a son? That's one way to hear it. Okay, and it, in the, I, interestingly, in that psalm, because again, he's saying read the whole psalm by quoting that verse. And the whole, in that psalm, it speaks about his seed coming as voluntary warriors and the dew of the earth to join him in, in battle. <laughs> the seed, okay? He will father many. Okay, so we have Zerah, you have Deno, they will serve him. This, the same kind of messianic idea is there, okay? And they will declare, they will declare uh, la Aroni for the Lord, la dor to the generation, okay? It will be regarding the Lord or for the Lord, it will be told or accounted in accounting. This is the gospel. This account of what has happened in this thing will be told and retold and the account will be gotten together, okay? Yesu par, it will be, it will be lined up and this orderly account for the sake of the Lord will be declared to the coming generation, okay? This is a prophecy of the, the spread of the gospel, and the spread of the news in the event of what has transpired here. Okay? And you have this phrase, La Adonai, for the Lord. Who is the Lord? Yeshua has already created tension with that phrase when he's spoken about the Messiah. Who's the Son of Man? What is the Son of Man? What is the Lord? He actually gets killed over those. So he gets killed over a combination of Psalm 110, 1 and 5 and Daniel 7, 13. Uh -huh. He reveals his interpretive metric. He reveals his cipher. The Son of Man is actually the Yahweh figure who received worship, not Yechezkel, a prophet. He is the, the human figure who sat on the throne and receives glory and honor and worship, riding on the clouds. And he is the one who wreaks destruction on Israel, who is disobedient in war as the Lord in battle. Right, <laughs> um, yeah. And, and so this is, this, this, this is a, a, a really powerful crescendo in the Psalmon. And then the last piece is, they come and they proclaim or they, they say they proclaim okay his righteousness the servant's righteousness the Lord's righteousness he did not become sin okay to a people who will be born yeah they haven't even been born yet because he has done it it is done because it's done. Kiasa. Do you want to know one of the ways to say Kiasa? Because it's done. It's over. Like, it's finished. It is finished. Yeah. It's accomplished. It's done. He has done it. He has accomplished it. It is finished. Kiasa. And then when I, like, <laughs> what is it? Those are the dying words of Yeshua. Yeah, he says it, he says it, it is finished, but yeah. it's like, he's conquered death. He's... He, yeah, he's done it. He's... Another way to say it is his, the kingdom of God and the enthronement have now been set into motion irreversibly by their very actions to kill him. Right. Godly. <laughs> I mean, that's so intense. Uh, it, it is. And, and here's what's insane about it. You have now, now that we've built this, how long, I mean, where are we at? With... We're probably at almost two hours. Okay, this is long, and I'm okay if it's longer. Are you okay with it being longer? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm cool with it. History. I I want to. I I will say this because I want to add to it, if I can. And and 
I want to say, Jeez. and I want to include, I want to include you in this because we can work through this and you can tell me how you work through this. The idea that let's work through some conundrums because now what you you can see now that we've gone through the psalm, it's absurd. The idea that God hid His face from him, that yeah. God was angry with him, right? Okay, He delights in him. Uh, he didn't hide his face from him. He didn't despise him. He rescues him and he in installs him and enthrones him. It's like, well, okay, that kind of ruins the PSA thing. Um, let's think through some more problems with this, though. Let's just let's just keep trying to track with it and say, no, but I still want to believe in PSA. Um, I still want to believe. Let me say it differently. Because nobody, I don't think many people say, I believe in PSA. <laughs> yeah. I, I still want to understand the idea that Jesus was punished so I don't have to be. Okay. He's not punished. Let's let's think of this process. Okay. Did you answer this question? Try to step into their shoes if you can, because I think it's fun to try to work through this. So yeah. We'll do it together. Let's say Jesus became sin. Okay. Uh, forget when that happened, because that's okay. bizarre. Did all of him become sin if he became sin? Did all of him become sin if he became sin? Yeah. Uh, well, eh. It's a bizarre that's question. That's like an ontological. It of. is an ontological question, right? I'd say on the immediate, yeah. Okay, so if somebody's saying that, I agree with you. That is how most people hear it. It's not—it's loosely an ontological statement. He became sin, but here's a problem: a, a subset of ontology is muriology, dividing a thing into its parts, an existence into its parts. Here's a funny question: so all of him became sin. Okay, did his blood become sin? <laughs> uh, no, because the blood wa washes me. <laughs> so. Okay, but 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 if we say all of him became sin, his blood became sin. Yeah. Okay, if his blood became sin, did the life in the blood become sin? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So then sin, which according to their metric, God despised, is wrathful towards and hates and can't look at because he turns his face away from it, is then applied to my conscience? <laughs> it's like he didn't do it. Okay. Let's take this idea further. Let, let, let's forget the complication I've just made with the blood shit. Okay. We'll just put that aside. Let's just say, well, it magically became not sin. Okay. At what point? Was it the resurrection? That he became not sin? If he was sin and he was punished, it uh, does, uh -huh, was uh -huh. it the resurrection that he be didn't become sin? Uh-huh. Yeah. Did he ever cease to... Is he still sin? It stopped when he was raised. So God can't be in the presence of sin. He's still sin. Or he's not sin. But if he's still sin, God enthrones sin next to him? When... Okay, I'll, I'll be the... I'll be the Devil's advocate or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Come against I, it. Well, when he dies, then sin went away. Because sin is destroyed uh, through death. Okay, got it. So death eradicates the sin. So then after he dies, then God can look at him. And when God decides to not turn his face away, it's at the point he says, now I'll raise him. Mm-hmm. Great. So that would mean the father did this, right? Here's a problem. And this is an instrumental problem. And this is why I'm trying to purposefully weave these problems together. Yeah. It's a multidimensional problem. It's not... Did the Holy Spirit ever leave Yeshua? No. Is the Holy Spirit God? Yes. I would agree. We now have problems like Isaiah or Ephesians 5. This is New Covenant problems, by the way. I'm going to read it just to help. Okay. 
uh, and live in love just as also Messiah loved us and gave himself as an offering and sacrifice to God for a fragrant smell. Now, sorry, that's a different verse. I, I went to a different verse. I, I, I cheated because the word smell is related to reach. It's reach nekoach, which is a word related to the word ruach. It does add to our problem. Uh, let, let's ask this. So wait a second. This I've just introduced a different problem. So I'm going to jump to Hebrews because it's actually in Hebrews that I'm trying to quote um, the idea that he offered himself by the Holy Spirit. Uh, while we're While I'm looking that up, Okay, because uh, I want to see, yeah, let's see there. We're in, it's actually Hebrews 9.14, okay? I'm going to read Hebrews 9.14. Um, so was the life in the blood was eradicated then? Because it's, it's the life in the blood that makes atonement, but his life was eradicated vis-a-vis death. Okay, let's follow it. We're following that. Okay, uh, I'm going to read Hebrews 9.14. How much more will the blood of the Messiah who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. So let's break this verse down in light of that. So he offers himself by the eternal spirit. So the Holy Spirit doesn't... Let, let, let's do this piece by piece. When he, when it says blood of Messiah, it's talking about his death, right? Yes. Okay, great. We're, we'll move on to this next part. We'll, we'll deal with offered himself. When it says offered himself, is that talking about his death? Yes. Pre-resurrection? Yes. Okay. So the Holy Spirit is still with him. Yes. It's because he's offered himself through the means of it, right? Yes. Intentionally. Okay. Does without blemish mean sin? Because it says he did it. He offered himself. We're talking about it at his death. He doesn't have... He, he's... He offers himself to... I mean, it's, I mean I'm just... I'm losing <laughs> yeah, ground. Okay. No, I know. This, this is the point. Because we, we have to think through this. So without blemish means without being tainted. Without sin. Without sin. Yeah. Uh, okay. And, and then we have the... In order to cleanse our consciences to serve the living God. And he offered himself to God. Now we can go back to the verse that I cited, Ephesians 5 too. So, go ahead. Ask questions. So yeah. then what happened to... So... He became a sacrifice yes. once for all sin. Yes. So it, it honestly helps me actually understand more of what yeah. was the death and resurrection. Yeah, what's the significance of Yeshua? Of yeah, what's the sacrifice? Um, Absolutely. I'm thinking like, well, what happened to the sin? Like <laughs> what happened? Because my idea is still like, well, it just went away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's now, now as far as what I'm understanding, because I've had this thought, is Isaiah 53 says he's a root out of dry ground. Yeah. He's essentially, if it's all dry ground, uh-huh. and he's a root, he's uh-huh. a shoot. Yeah. Then, the ground needs has, was supposed to have more shoots. Supposed to have life. It's supposed to, to have life. Bingo. Yeah, 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 yeah. But he, the way I'm seeing it is that he was faithful to the end with what God's will was. Amen. He was given the judgment by yeah. the world, yeah. worthy of death. Yes. God's judgment was worthy of life. Yes. And through his blood as a sacrifice, yeah. as the priests would have to have to yes. go enter into God's presence yes. through his blood, like yes. what Hebrews 9.14 is, we are able to access Yeah presence with okay. God. Okay, it gets weirder than that. I'm going to I didn't want to touch this because you said the priest whatever. Is he a <laughs> yeah. priest of just earth or a priest of heaven? Of heaven as well. Here's a weird verse in Hebrews 9. It's worth I think it's worth taking a peek at because it it, it demonstrates that if Yeshua's death is what's in view, which I believe it is when it comes to his offering, 
okay, and where's his blood, where his blood is applied. Um, I'm going to go to Hebrews 9, and we're close to, you know, the end of it. Um, yeah, yeah. So first, uh, we have this idea of blood in Hebrews 9 ex- explored over and over again. And we have this idea that he his blood is shed to cleanse space in verse 26 to removal of sin by sacrifice of himself okay um and here's something that's interesting i'm just going to read verses 23 uh and 24 therefore it was necessary for the sketches of the things in heaven sorry does it say in heaven here it says in heaven Therefore, it was necessary for the sketches of things in heaven to be purified with these sacrifices. The sketches, meaning the tabernacle, whatever on the earth. Mm-hmm. But the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. For Messiah did not enter into a sanctuary made by hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. Holy shit. So, yeah. <laughs> so he so was doing, wow. He's cleansing the heavens. This is a bizarre, okay. Now, now let's go back to the, I want to touch the Ephesians 5, 2 verse because we're really part of, what we need to touch is the character part. People hate themselves, and mm-hmm. that makes sense. The accuser, Diablos, the, the slanderer, the accuser, he tells people how worthless, how terrible they should conceive of themselves. Yes. The Satan, Hasatan. Um, and that view combined with a sense of holiness, a perverted sense of holiness, can really dredge up the idea of terror and fear and God must hate me because I'm so despicable, I'm so evil. So God hates, God, when God views sin, he hates it, he abhors it. I actually think there's truth in that, that he abhors sin, he hates sin. But when they say Yeshua became sin, they, they literally say, God hit his face, he couldn't look at him, he became despicable, he became horrific. I'm going to read you Ephesians 5 too, And this is an example we're supposed to copy. And live in love. Did Yeshua live in love? Yes. Oh, cool. Okay, so live in love, just as also Messiah loved us and gave himself for us an offering and sacrifice to God for a fragrant smell, a pleasing aroma. The phrase of the pleasing, a pleasing aroma. That he, it wouldn't be sin that he's... Exactly. He's like, oh, I can't get enough of this. It's beautiful. Yeah. The life that's in that blood. His life is beautiful. He loves God. He loves his neighbor. He's perfect. Yeah. That's how atonement works. A beautiful thing is literally daubed or placed on top of, covered, kiper, okay, on top of a lacking, ugly thing. And that's what the Holy Spirit indwelt within you through Yeshua as a life-giving spirit. I would say within us. first, that's what the blood accomplishes so the Holy Spirit can live in us. Yeah. Which is why the death, has to, the crucifixion has to precede the descent at Pentecost. The blood application through the gospel message and the conscience has to precede the Holy Spirit coming to live in it. Right. Um, and so we have these ideas that he's pleasing to God when he offers himself to God. There's so many related ideas about atonement. And um, yeah, this psalm is, I hope we've demonstrated this psalm is really way, way, way. Ironically, there's way more explanatory power to demonstrate, yeah, there's a reason the psalms are repeated in the New Testament over and over and over and over and over and over again. Right. And it proves the idea that God's judgment, and you brought this up earlier, and I want to touch the character part. It, a que- I'm going to ask the practical question first. The practical question is, okay, um, so authority on heaven and earth is scattered. 
it's scattered and it's staggered and it's divided. Yes. We know this from Genesis 11. There are beings that divide up the nations. Deuteronomy 32, 7 and 8 reveal to us that the nations are numbered according to the sons of God. These beings lead to rebellion. Psalm 82 reveals this. Okay. Yeah. Hasatan is called the god of the age. Messiah says of the, of the Satan, if look, if I'm driving out demons by the prince of demons and Satan's kingdom is divided, what does that mean? What title does he give Satan? He calls him a king. So we know that, the, and then the question becomes very simply, where are these unseen beings located? The heavens, literally the go-to jam for Protestants is for spiritual warfare is Ephesians 6, do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the powers, the archons, the heads in heavenly places. The word heavens is plural. The lower heavens are dominated by evil, okay? By the doers of evil and by powers and thrones. We see this in Daniel, 21 days, they hold off Gabriel, the mighty one of God, and Michael, Michael. Right? There's spiritual warfare aspect to this. So the idea is heaven, the heavens have really screwed up authority. They were given authority uh, when mankind insisted on the Tower of Babel and this perverse union, and God handed them over. Okay, so the authority is divided, and the nations he just gives away. And he just takes Abraham and says, I'll just take him. He's mine. Okay. So we have authority there. We have multiple kingdoms competing with each other in the earth. That's clear. Okay. Now let's cast the picture in the days of Yeshua. A question becomes practical. If I want my son, Yeshua, to have all authority in heaven and on earth, should I take it? Should you take it now? If it's the Father, should I just snatch it from them? No. He gave uh, it to them. Yeah. But could they be duped or lose access to their own authority that they've been they've usurped and given? And this is an interesting question. The question becomes practically, how would the Son, because everyone's familiar with the idea of the Great Commission, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. A question arises, and so how does the Messiah get all authority in heaven and on earth? Another way to say that, by the way, as an aside, is he's the King of heaven and the King of earth. His kingdom of God, king language. How does he get all authority in heaven and earth? Well, very simply, let's talk about it. Let's Authority is related to the idea of the process of shafat. He judged, or shafat, judgment. He's judging, mishpat, judgment. Okay. The son is given to be judged. Let's see what the God of the age says. The God of the age says he should die. The bulls of Bashan in Psalm 22, these other beings in leagues with him say, he should die, they surround him. Okay. We go to the scene realm. Uh, what does Caesar say? His representative, uh, Pilate, he should die. We'll kill him. The soldiers, the Goyim, the Gentiles, he should die. Well, what about the Jewish people? Caiaphas, the high priest, tears erupts. He should die. The Sanhedrin, which is literally, it's the judgment. The people gathered together for Beidin, the house of judgment. He should die. Even though two of their own numbers, who are Parashim, who are Pharisees, who are two witnesses, and that's all you need to overturn it, Joseph of Arimathea, and Nicodemus say, he is a good man, and he really is the prophet. Okay, he really is the one, right? The Mashiach. At the very least, a man sent by God. Okay. Uh, they say, all these people together, these organs of judgment, he should die, he should die, he should die, he should die. What about the Jewish people who were crying out, Maranatha, save us, or Hoshana, save us. Crucify him, crucify him, he should die. So what you end up having happen is, from the highest of authorities that are out of line with God, Satan, he should die. Bulls Bashan, he should die. Caesar, he should die. Leaders, he should die. Gentiles, he should die. High priests, he should die. Sanhedrin, he should die. Israel, he should die. He lets everyone judge his son. And like you said, he says, okay, now it's my turn to judge my son. He shouldn't die. God's judgment of the son is the resurrection. Yeah. So simple. God's judgment of the son is his restoration of, to life. 
Yeah. So he allows everyone to collude together and agree and judge him as worthy of death. All authority in heaven and earth is misused in the most grotesque way possible. And so there it hangs. And God says, no, my son should live. And by the way, all of your authority is his now. You've yeah. all misjudged. Here's how he got all authority in heaven and earth. It's, a biz- it's an incredible, incredible reversal. Nobody saw it coming. So you have this idea that God's judgment of Jesus is he's so angry at sin. God's judgment of sin is his wrath when he pours it on Jesus. God has a lot of anger and wrath that's coming. The wrath isn't gone. I mean, look how Ananias and Sapphira died. Look at what Thessalonians says, the wrath of God. Jesus is going to bring the wrath, dude. Yeshua came to save you from Yeshua, bro. It's going to be a great (laughs) and terrifying day. He came once to deal with sin. After that, he doesn't come to deal with sin anymore. He comes for judgment. He will judge. He's the judge of the living and the dead. And when he judges, he's not coming in the meekness that you saw him come like a root out of dry ground where his identity is obscured and opaque to us. He comes unveiled. On a, on a, I mean, fucking on a fucking horse. He's depicted as uh, a warrior. Psalm 110, Revelation. Okay, The wrath is coming. Yeshua is going to inflict it on anyone who does not receive his blood and his spirit. Which is why John 3 will say things like, if you do not believe in the Son, you stand condemned because the wrath of God remains on you. Here's a funny thing about the Calvinist conception of this. God elected you, predetermined, you're going to be saved, but the God's wrath is still on you prior to the point of you receiving the Spirit. So yeah. The wrath so remains what? on you, and then he decides to take it off of you. And you can't leave if you're one of the elect, according to their conception. This is partly why they get to L and their tulip is limited atonement. They believe he only died for the elect, but even so, it's still a bizarre phenomena that they have. That God's wrath and anger and his him considering you as a sinner is repulsive, is on you until he decides that you say that you receive the spirit. It's I mean, these are bizarre conceptions. Yeah. But we're touching a lot of things. I don't, you know, you can you can take the floor if you think that we're we're going too far afield you tell me if you want to touch something i've touched touch it i, I i'm kind of pouring out because i know that a lot of my peeps uh, will want to hear this and they want different things to equip them i know this is like you know yeah no this is great i mean this is episode three um actually digging in on scripture i think it's our first episode doing that yeah um one of the elements that we're going to be um examining through this podcast for the time that we have um there's other layers too, like our lives as disciples and equipping, equipping the saints. And this is one of those for those two. And it's so deep. If anything, this shows why to not take what is written at surface Mm -hmm. value. That's right. At all, because we just spent two hours examining one Psalm. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, I think that's good, honestly. Um, yeah, I think so. Uh, uh, and uh, I mean, if you have any any last things that you want to say about understanding this, or yeah, I would just say um, I'll leave you. I kind of leave it with a riddle. Read it in context. Read the whole thing. Look at it carefully. This psalm isn't actually read. Only the first verse is read. I- I'm going to say that again because it's bizarre. There are 31 verses in this psalm. It's more quoted than any other psalm in the New Testament. And when you hear Christians quoted, they quote the first one and they don't know the rest of it. Um, I heard something from a Jewish studies professor that I I deeply admire him. He was one of the most brilliant men I'd ever met. Um, He would say, you know, it's very counterintuitive what happens when 
you canonize scripture. A lot of people assumed, oh no, if you canonize it and uh, you restrict it, it's going to become so wooden and it's going to become so restrictive and it's going to become uh, so like, you know, there's no space for creativity, you know, like there's, you're just like, you're becoming wooden and robotic. And he said, that's not what happens at all. It's the opposite. So many wild, outlandish, crazy ideas get layered on and added because canon becomes a safety net. And the metaphor he used was, if you see acrobats on the trapeze, they, are, they stay in their lanes when there's no net under them in the show. You put a safety net under them, they're going to do all kinds of wild shit. So wild that it's like, well, they're okay because they're safe. Same thing for Christians. They don't realize that they're violating the scriptures because they have the notion, well, it's just in there. We're safe. We can add whatever wild thoughts we want to it because we can at least, at the end of the day, say with our safety net, I believe the Bible, even though I violate it, even though I contradict it, even though I don't know what it says. I believe the Bible. I'm a Bible-believing Christian. Okay? So I would say all this talk really comes down to like, dude, we just, we just read the psalm. Yes, there was a lot of background, but we read the psalm in its entirety. Read the psalm. Yeah. Sing the psalm. Pray the psalm. We're going to put a resource. We're going to share a resource here where um, some brothers have made Psalm 22 into a song. And in our churches, we sing Psalm 22. Yeah. Just try to worship with it and sing sing to it. Yes. Yeah. And so. talk to Jesus about it. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Thanks, bro. Yeah, bro.